Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. During the pandemic, I am adding into that balance, as many of you are, homeschooling. And my guests this fall will be talking about how they've managed their time, their sanity, their cognition, with all these things going on. And what we can learn from them, we can apply to all sorts of parts of our life. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. First up, I want to talk about how human brains retain information. It's going to sound a little strange, but you can't truly learn anything new. That is to say, you can't learn anything well and retain it if you have nothing whatsoever to hook it onto. That's why there's value in practicing. That's why there's value in going back to what you did grasp and adding new information incrementally to it. And context really matters. This is what explains the problems with testing, particularly testing like the SATs. It was found in a series of studies some years ago that the SATs were created for and taken successfully by white students, white upper middle class students, largely male. That was who it was designed for. Does that matter? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Because my favorite example is if you put a test question on the SAT that talks about oven control, cookies baking in the oven at 350 degrees, many of us right now can sit there and almost start doing it. Look at the back of the chocolate chip bag, follow the instructions, 350 for how long. This is not going to be challenging or difficult for us because we have this background knowledge. And even if we've never made the recipe that this particular question is asking about, we're going to be able to transfer the knowledge that we already have to learn a little bit more or extrapolate a little bit more or follow down that logic puzzle. But if you were a kid who was homeless for a chunk of your life or neglected or cared for in such a way that you never or cared for in such a way that you never interfaced with a kitchen what possible meaning is this question going to have for you now we could flip this we could ask comfortable middle class largely white largely male children what you need to look out for if you're going to live in your car Where are you going to go to the bathroom? How are you going to keep warm? Where are you going to get clean water? How do you keep yourself safe? There are many, many, a shocking, horrifying number of kids who can answer those questions without a second thought. But nobody asks them those questions on the SAT. It's worth questioning these assessments. We take them at face value we operate under a mindless set of assumptions about them. We do this with IQ as well, that there is somehow something measurable about potential, that there is somehow something measurable right now about personality, that we, if we take this one hour slice of someone's life under these circumstances in this context, we will be able to make predictions about them. We will be able to make judgments about them. 
Sometimes we do it because we feel we'll be able to assist them. There's something in all of this, this quantification, that we rarely really back up and say, does this actually measure objectively anything? Or is it bringing all these questions, these these unexamined questions with unexamined assumptions, and then building on top of that quicksand? And in these cases, often really damaging people's lives as a result. If you have a situation, as we all know, and this is one that we kind of acknowledge, it's possible to take a test when you feel awful. And you will not do that well on that test, regardless of how well you know that material. So what did you get tested on? You got tested on a series of questions, which may or may not indicate mastery. And you got tested on how you felt that day. Most people can recognize this, and it's something that reasonable instructors, reasonable situations will take into account. I mean, it's one of the reasons you can take the SAT a number of times. But then there is this other set of assumptions that everybody comes from the same life experience, and that therefore they will be able to apply that life experience onto this question. And, you know, the homeless one is just one of many. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that homelessness is so, so stressful that learning is impeded, or rather academic testable learning is impeded. You're learning a lot, but you're learning how to manage under very extreme circumstances, survival circumstances. It's a little bit like asking somebody who's been through a refugee. In fact, it's pretty much exactly like asking someone who's been through a refugee situation to turn around and calmly give you the, you know, the wives of Henry VIII. It's not necessarily going to be easy to do or easy to hook onto your own experience. But the flip of this is twofold. One is to recognize that learning takes place all the time. It's one of the things that really distinguishes us as humans. Although I say that in the mid side of my mouth, I keep thinking of all these other animals that I have been enjoying videos of in the last year. TikTok is fantastic for this. There's a dog named Bunny who thinks out and gives words. Bunny is an adult dog, she continues to learn. She continues to learn how to press the buttons that say little words, and she continues to learn how to associate them. There was a gray parrot that learned not only extensive, extensive vocabulary, but they began to ask it abstract questions about what's it like being a bird, and it appeared to be answering them thoughtfully in ways that were not trained into it. So maybe it's worth saying that we, like many animals, learn and continue to learn our whole lives. So it's important to honor that learning because there is nothing so damaging to learning. There is nothing that shuts off I was going to say shuts off the faucet, but that's not the right way. It would be shuts off the the sponge, the, the ability to intake information as much as contempt. 
And once you know that, start looking for it in yourself and others and start objecting to it and standing up to it. Because plenty, plenty of people who should know better instruct in such a way that this person who is being instructed is held in contempt. And that can be perceived through the way they talk, through the type of language they use, through their dismissing of questions, through their dismissal of students participating, all of those things. There's, there is no better way as an instructor to take a knob and turn off all your students than to behave with contempt or to hold them in contempt. Because the minute that is sensed is the minute that they say, there's nothing in this for me. So the first way to counteract some of these problems of testing, some of these problems of instructing, is to not hold students in contempt, to hold the learning that they have as something to be honored. You may not know what that learning is. You may not know where their gaps are. You may not know what the situation was or what their stress level is now, but you can do a lot by just starting with the fact that the person in front of you is a whole and complete person. And this very much feeds into homeschooling. Just because someone is young doesn't mean they're incapable or incompetent. Somebody young is perfectly able to be at the level that they're at, and that level is appropriate. If you want to help them get to mastery, then do that with a shared goal and shared understanding and the ability to support that understanding. Go into it with an idea that you're going to fill them up or draw on their blank blackboard in the mind, and you've already lost because you're holding what they know currently in contempt, that they're waiting to be filled up by you. And testing on that is also counterproductive. And I think one of the most interesting things about this is that because we are such learners, because we have such limitless potential, there's no reason, and in fact, there's quite a waste to doing many ways of traditional instruction. If you come from a point of view that there is limitless potential in this person and that your role is to support them in that, then they can do miracles. They, they will go places your brain has never thought to go because that actually is an experience all of us should have. And many, and I would venture to say most of us do not. We started out that way. If we were lucky, we can name six or seven people who have supported us in this way over many, many years of education. But it's not usually the main confident place for us as ourselves as students, ourselves as learners, that we too have limitless potential, that our minds can go places that people who know us could never suspect. But we have to let go of what is now a self-judging, self-contempt position. It is unfortunate that one of the ways we learn so hard is we take on that contempt. It's one of the reasons why it's harder. It makes it harder for us to learn new things as we go along. Is it necessarily the plasticity of the mind, but 
the fact that we judge and rejudge and judge ourselves very, very harshly. We start to do something and assume we need many, many more years of training in order to do it. And then we feel bad because this thing we always wanted to do, we don't even start pursuing it because we're so discouraged. That is the same mechanism as being faced with an instructor or a parent who holds us in contempt. And we take on those behaviors that were modeled for us. And it's very hard to shake them. One of the sort of sort of edges of the sword of our minds is that we actually take in habits of mind and beliefs like this very, very quickly. And once we have them, it can be very, very difficult to unlearn them, to let them go. It, it can be a struggle for most of our adult lives to work on catching ourselves when we are that harsh, catching ourselves when we stop ourselves from pursuing something that gives us enormous satisfaction or enormous joy because we've put ourselves in that judging position. And in that judging position, we often discount the extraordinary amount of knowledge and experience we already have that we could bring to bear on this new thing and use it as the ramp to get better at this thing that we want to pursue. In other words, if you want to learn to figure draw and you say to yourself, I can't draw, I could never draw. I was terrible in art class. I could never do this. I wish I could. It would make me so happy to be able to do it. I tried. It looked terrible. I gave up. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to find that a very familiar set of sentences, set of thoughts that go through our minds as we think of doing something like drawing. And what's it worth anyway? It's not that important. But here's the thing. When you were very small, I hope that nobody, for a little while at least, got in your way when you drew what I affectionately call potato people. Those are like those shapes that are like a just very shaky, poorly made potato oval and a straight line down. There's a leg and a straight line down. That's another leg and a line out and a line out and some kind of circle for the head and some hair. In other words, go and look at toddler drawings and start there. Start doing them and making yourself laugh. And as you've done a hundred of these, start to do something a little bit different. Start to draw hands, circles with little fingers on them, little things sticking out from them. You can even find books on this. Go back and look at what's appropriate for child development drawing before they give up. Because you may need to go back to where you were before someone made you think badly about yourself and start there. And in fact, doing things like this are particularly rewarding because what's the outcome of this? Joy and pleasure in the doing of it. Mastery in the doing of it. And it's something that you can do for a while, gain some satisfaction and put aside and pick up again another time. You don't have to become a world-renowned artist, but like Grandma Moses at 75, I think she sold her first painting. You might. And in the meantime, you will have retrained your brain to know better things about yourself and to know kinder things about yourself. 
With me today is Sarah Wall, an entrepreneur and owner and founder of Zera Support, X-E-R-A-S-U-P-P-O-R-T dot com, which is a virtual assistant business. And she also does a blog called Raising Royalty at RaisingRoyalty.ca. And along with all this, she raises and educates a lovely group of young women. Thank you for being on the show, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. So why don't you give me a little bit of background on your work and then how you've integrated educating your kids? Well, I mean, I started with the the kids education part and mm-hmm. kind of went in from there. So it's kind of backwards than what you would think. <laughs> um, so I started actively homeschooling my children when my oldest was little. And uh, as the years went on and and life happened. I had gotten married and then gotten divorced. And I found myself a single parent with a house full of little kids. And I wanted to continue homeschooling because I could see my kids thriving with that. And daycare is expensive. Right. Because I had four children under, under six at the time. Yeah. And I just needed to do something from home. In the middle of my homeschooling, I had started blogging. I think that's how a lot of homeschooling parents, we just kind of, we want to share what we've learned, right? So I had started blogging and I had learned a lot about how to make a blog work, how to make a website work. And so I started just simply offering those skills to other bloggers and it kind of grew from there to now where I do all the tech support behind the scenes for a, a few clients and I'm, you know, growing and branching out into different different programs and and different technology. I love it. So much fun. Oh, that's very cool. And so you specifically crafted like a work life around like accommodating so that you could be educating your kids. Exactly. I mean, it was really important for me to be able to be home with my children. When I first started looking for a way to work from home, I mean, that was 10 years ago more than that. My oldest at the time was about two and a half. And I was a single parent at the time. And uh, I was in college, and I had Mm. prepaid daycare for the semester. Okay, about four weeks into the semester, because I had the money, right? So I prepaid for daycare for the semester. And uh, about four weeks into the semester, my daycare provider told me she was moving. And I needed to find more daycare. I was like, okay, that's fine, but I'll need you to refund the rest of the money. And then she ghosted me. (gasps) And I didn't have any more money to pay for the daycare. And I ended up having to drop out. Oh, no. I didn't have childcare. And I was a single parent. And I I mean, what am I supposed to do? I didn't have the money for daycare. Can't leave my two-year-old by herself. Can't take her to class with me. Uh, So I ended up dropping out. And I ended up frantically looking for something, anything that I could do from home. And that's kind of where the whole idea of starting to work from home really started for me. I delved into some direct sales businesses. They worked well, Mm. but they didn't do anything more than give me a little extra spending money. And direct sales, are, is that what, like the like marketing, multi-level like it, marketing kinds of things? No, or no? no, I learned that there's a difference between the two. Direct okay. sales, think of direct sales like it's a franchise, okay. right? So, I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard of franchises like McDonald's yeah. or your local coffee chain. Yeah. Well, the way a franchise works is that you set up your own business, but you get all of the marketing materials and all of the inventory from a parent company. 
So you pay for the marketing materials and the inventory at a discount, and then you resell okay. that inventory and you use, like you piggyback off of their national marketing. So direct sales in terms of a home-based business, direct sales are anything where you have inventory that you're buying and then reselling. So think catalog businesses, think Got Tupperware, it. think Avon, think Mary Kay, like those kinds of businesses. They work well as long as your market's not saturated. Right. So I was the only Avon lady for the entire neighborhood. It was awesome. <laughs> I dropped off my catalogs and took the orders and then packaged it, you know, got the inventory, packaged it up and did my rounds again. Once a month gave me enough to, you know, pay a, like pay a bill and, and do a couple of extra, you know, buy my kid birthday presents kind of thing. That was that was about it. But I needed more and I knew I needed more. So then I kind of moved up to the multi-level marketing. I dived into an online multi-level marketing company where I, you know, I did my research to make sure it wasn't a scam. Mm. I did a lot of those calls too. I mean, mm. there were a lot of those calls. The one I like the best that always makes me laugh is I'm on one of those presentation calls and you know, you know, the pitch, they spend 30 minutes doing all of their, this is what you're going to get. And this is how the program works. And at the end, they're like, well, all you need to do is invest $1,200 into our kit and you know, you'll be good to go and you'll make thousands in you know, weeks. And I hung up because I'm like, if I had $1,200, I'd be looking for a way to work from home. Like seriously, people. <laughs> so that I was just like, that's not working for me. But I did find a legitimate way of doing it. And multi-level marketing is more like um, the way an insurance company or a mortgage company works. It's basically a way of outsourcing, like for a manufacturing company to outsource their sales department. Ah, got it. Okay. So, I mean, if you've ever done an insurance, if you've ever done insurance at all, you know that when you go to buy insurance policy, you work with a broker, but you're right. not paying the broker, you're paying the insurance company, but the broker makes commission on all of the policies they sell. Right. They only have to sell the policy once because you're going to continue playing over and over and over again. Right. Right. But they're going to make every time you pay that insurance bill, they're going to make a commission. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that's how multi-level marketing generally works is that depending on the company you work with, um, you want to sell. It's usually something that's subscription based. So it might be uh, a consumer membership program, like a wholesale membership program. It might be, a, you know, lawyer fees that you pay like like an insurance program. But for lawyer fees, there's mm -hmm. lots of those out there. Maybe an energy subscription one. There's lots of those ones out there, too. Basically, what you're doing is you're selling the memberships. Right on the phone usually or in person, but I mean, with COVID it's on the phone now and then you make commission. Yes. And that's get paid. So this, well. this is so interesting because I have seen this trajectory so many times, particularly with mothers trying to find something flexible. You know, most of the advice, and this used to drive me crazy, and granted my kids were growing up in the very early days of the internet, but most of the advice was ask your boss if you can have a flexible schedule. And it was like, um... What if you don't <laughs> that, have a boss? Yeah, I don't have a boss, and it's, you, it's really difficult to find one and say, I'm going into this wanting yeah. this entirely foreign way of working with you. So I know that a lot of moms end up doing this kind of multi-level marketing or direct marketing and then 
sort of becoming disenchanted, burning out a bit. Not you, you moved out of that into a business of your own. What was the process of, of that? Um, well, it was kind of both a personal crisis and a real determination just that I had to make this work. I didn't have any other options, right? Right. I mean, because I was a college dropout, and people don't hire college dropouts. They just don't. I mean, unless I wanted to work retail for the rest of my life, which would not have let me stay home or pay for daycare. Right. <laughs> I needed to do something, right? And so I took this, like, I worked with uh, the MLM company I worked with. I had a fantastic team of support. And I mean, that really makes the difference. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a fantastic team of support until all of a sudden my main support contact, again, ghosted me. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. I'm assuming it was a, a personal crisis on their part, but... I was suddenly left without my connection to my support team and I didn't know what to do. I still technically have my membership with that <sighs> MLM. I could pick it up at any time I wanted to, um, but it's not, you know, I still keep my membership because I legitimately enjoyed the products that I was marketing for them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I st it's still there. I could still pick that up. I actually still get a small paycheck for from it, you know, from work I've done previously which is kind of the nice thing about it because I don't yeah. have to do anything to keep it going. But um, I took the skills and then combined that with the blogging I had done. So now I had the mark that all of the marketing techniques that I had learned. I mean, some of them I learned, this is not what I want to do. And some of them I learned, this works really well. And I really like this. Mm. Uh, and then I took that combined with my text skills that I had learned from blogging and just basically combined that. And then you wouldn't believe what you can learn on, on YouTube and, and a lot of the free courses. Right. So, right. You know, I, you know, as I had time, which was not a lot, you know, I worked a lot of late nights and early mornings because <laughs> kids, there's a lot you can learn when you're nursing a baby in the middle of the night and I needed to stay awake <laughs> so I didn't drop the baby. So I put on headphones and I put on like a video course or a YouTube tutorial and just kind of learn it by osmosis. <laughs> Get creative, I, lo I love right? that. I love that. If you want something bad enough, there's always a way to do it. You just have to find the right support to do it. And so what I ended up doing is as I was providing support to other bloggers, I really decided that I wanted to target those who were in my shoes. And I wanted to make their learning curve a little bit easier. So, you know, I've developed techniques and products and services targeted for those who want to start a business, don't have $1,200 to invest in learning how to start a business right? and helping them get started on an affordable budget. Oh, interesting. And how do you find them? Word of mouth, actually. I mean, there's something about building a reputation, right? Mm. When you build a reputation for being helpful, when you build a reputation for being honest um, and for being someone who's going to get stuff done, right? Right. Um, I, all of my clients refer me on. Oh, Even when neat. they're done working with me, they're, they all refer me on. And so do you... I introduced you as a VA or a virtual assistant. Is that essentially, is that correct? Or is it, um, it sounds bigger than that or broader? Somewhat. Some it's more that I am a combination of virtual assistant where I will provide what we call done for you services. So I'll go in and do it for you. 
Um, I also do web design. So there's that. So I could call myself a web designer. Mm. I could call myself a business manager, an online business manager, because I do project planning. One of my clients is, has hired me to do project planning for her creating an e-course. She just needs that oh. little extra accountability. Yeah. And I know what pieces she needs. So, you know, I just write it out for her and then check in on her, make sure that she's and help her delegate with her team to create all the pieces that she needs right? to put the course together. And then at the end, I'm providing the done for you services to put it on the platform. Have you done, have you done any e-courses yourself? Cause I feel like that's right have, up your alley. <laughs> I have not yet. Mm. Um, mostly because it takes time to create the pieces and I'm kind of busy um, <laughs> between, between kids and clients. There's not a whole lot of other time to be building out other products. I do have a lot of what we call info products, which are basically downloadable products that you can get. Mm. Um, in fact, I do give a lot away for free. Uh, one of my most popular products is a little ebook that I put together that basically details what I learned about finding work from home. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's wonderful what the different types of businesses or work from home opportunities are out there, what to look for to make sure that you're not going to get scammed, you know, what those red flags are, and then which one's going to fit you the best, right? Right. Direct sales work really, really well for some people. For other people, they don't work at all and you're going to get hurt. So mm. just, you know, I wanted to put together Actually, basically a, a checklist of some kind to help people figure out where they should even start looking, because sometimes that's half the battle is you don't even know where to start looking. Right. Right. You, and know, so I'm, you know, that's what I'm well, and I think I <laughs> have I not come across. Didn't you do some homeschooling books as well? Some like information things, because yeah. I think I've come across those and they're fantastic. Yeah, I have a second, my blog, which is about my homeschooling journey as a single parent, it really started because as I learned how to homeschool, I mean, it is a learning curve, there is mm. a journey here. I was answering the questions, you know, in the support groups on Facebook, on Twitter, on, you know, the email, if you remember, 10 years ago, those email groups, right? right? Yes. And I, I got tired of repeating myself, you know, I was <laughs> copy and paste, copy and paste. I'm like, no, 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 we'll put it up on a blog post. And I'll just share the link. Right, right. right. So I have, you know, I have almost 200 posts on there. And I would say half of them are on the how to start homeschooling part. It's, you know, what do you do if you are homeschooling and you fall pregnant? Right. Can you homeschool while you're pregnant? Yes. Yes, you can. I've done it four times. Five times. <laughs> Five times. Well, can you homeschool while you move? Yes. Yes, you can. I've done that half a dozen times as well. Can you homeschool a special needs child? Yes. Yes, you can. I have an autistic child and I homeschool her just fine. Can you homeschool a toddler? Yes. I've done that. <laughs> Five times. You know what I mean? I just simply shared what I've learned and it's there. So um, a couple of years ago, I wanted to, again, to kind of make it a one-stop intro. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm talking to Sarah Wall, an entrepreneur, mother of six, and homeschooler, about how she balances her business, her kids, and making sure they learn what they need to learn to be productive adults. 
to homeschooling. So I created an ebook called Homeschool 101, the 10 steps to getting started. So it's just laid out in 10 easy steps. It is also full of like worksheets and planner pages. And I mean, it's a 60 page. It ended up being like a 60 plus page. (laughs) And I actually do offer that. It is um, not a free product. It's a for sale product, but it is on my blog. Nice. Nice. Well, and it's interesting because you hit a couple of things that, well, first of all, I don't think we've been explicit. You have six daughters now. I do. I have six daughters. They are ages three through 16. So that's just, first of all, (laughs) congratulations and amazing. (laughs) And you are, I believe, still a single parent, right? And have been for a chunk of this, right? So those are right off the bat. You were talking about people saying, can I do this? Can I, what's interesting is how often I hear, I can't. I can't do this because I'm a single mom. I can't do this because I have a spread of children. I can't do this because some of my kids are really little. And so I just, this is one of the pieces where it's sort of like, you are doing it. Therefore, it is within the scope of humans' ability to do it. My God, I hear people say all the time, oh, I can't do it because I didn't finish college. Or well. my degree isn't education. And that's the, the like, I just read this great quote. I should find out who it was from because I'm quoting it. But they said, we don't actually know how people learn. Like school has only been around for, you know, a little over 160 years anyway, in the way that it is now. And we don't know how people learn. So it's all kind of up in the air. So people sort of counting themselves out before they've even given it a try, just assuming that other people have more than they do. I just think you really speak to that by saying, oh, this is well within your wheelhouse. This is something yeah, people people can do. My motto is that there is always a way. I mean, it just depends on what you want to do. There is always a way. For some people, it might be harder than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's like, that's realistic. There are times where it can be really hard. It can seem almost impossible to do it. But there is always a way. You just have to find the right way, the right support to make sure you can actually do it. Yeah. My experience has been that oftentimes I can't find the support I need, so I create it. Mm. But that's not always doable for everybody either. I recognize that. But that's, again, why people like me have to step up and say, like, we have to step up and we have to say, you know what, this wasn't here before, but it is going to be here now. Because other people shouldn't have to struggle like this. This, Right. This this should not be a thing. We should be able to make it better. I'm in a position where I can. My little bit, I can. I have knowledge and I have experience and I have a story to tell that can help other people. Yes. Yes. And that's actually the origins of this podcast is there, you know, there are wheels. You don't have to reinvent them. (laughs) There are wheels. Everybody has their own story, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, tell your story because you never know who you could help. Yeah. I mean, there are so many times where I share just even a portion of my story going through a divorce and, and being a single parent. And I repeatedly get emails on how much that helped them. Yeah. You know, I get emails on homeschooling a special needs child and how much that's helped. And I mean, I don't call myself an expert in any of this. All I'm sharing is this is what worked for me. This is how I've done it. This is what I've learned. Right. Use what you will. Well, I'll tell you something that I'm just observing, talking to you and listening to you. And that is you are arguing for your 
competency is not for your limitations. And I very much understand the sort of impulse to argue for my limitations. I feel like I did that for a long time. And it was one of those things where you can't describe water to a fish. Like I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but I was always trying to find the reasons why comparing myself to someone else, they could do something and I couldn't. And combination of how I was raised and my situation at the time and all sorts of things. But it's been a really interesting turnaround and start looking at all these things. Homeschooling actually was one of the things that started to pull me out of that when I said, wait a minute, this is going great. Like, <laughs> I had no right? idea. I had no idea there's, it would be this great. like learning with your kids to make right? you realize, yeah, you can keep learning. Yeah. It's okay. There's nothing that says that learning stops at age 18 when you're finished school. Right. Or has to occur or has to occur in college in a certain specific kind of way or that or that if you haven't done that, you've somehow blown it as a person like your like your capacity for development is now the the doors shut on that. And I mean, it's so strange that we honor people who are in their 40s or 50s for going back and getting a degree. And I'm going, why can't why can't they? Right. Like, what's, you know, why is this, why is this so strange that this now seems to be a huge superhero kind of thing to do? What is, what does it say about our mindset and our, and our society that learning at an, you know, an older age or middle age is now all of a sudden a strange thing? Yeah. But always never makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because a sort of corollary to that is the idea that we constantly are bombarded with like 20 under 20, 30 under 30, 40 under 40. And it all comes down to this idea that you've missed your window. Like, the, and, and granted, comparing ourselves with other people, and I grew up with that. It's also a thing that, that schools often do. It's very toxic. But we also have that as a message surrounding us all the time here the 30 under 30 and now you look it, and you're like i'm 35 and i've done nothing or i'm 50 it's, and it's I... even a message that we give that we that our kids pick up right i mean they have to wait till they're a certain age to be able to do anything mm. and i i have really i have struggled with that um especially working with a, you know the different needs of my children and really struggled with the idea that they have to wait till they're a certain age to be able to do something. Because I get called on it all the time. My kids are not afraid to tell me, you know, wait, why, mom? Why? Why is that a thing? I'm 11 I and I could be driving. <laughs> I have to think it through. And I have to give them real, I mean, I have made a policy never to lie to my kids. I will tell them age-appropriate things, but I will never lie to my kids. Right. And I have to really think sometimes have to sit down and think that through. Like, why am I saying no right now? Like, why? What's the reasoning behind that? Sometimes there's a legitimate reason. Sometimes it is a case of maturity and risk. But sometimes they're right. There is no reason why they can't go do something. I'll give you an example. My 10-year-old asked about two weeks ago, she wanted to learn more about business. You know, Mm. how do you start a business? Mm. And I'm like, okay, I can show you how. She's like, no, 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 mom. I don't want you to tell me. I want to have somebody else tell me. I'm like, oh, okay, fine, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So we went on Out School, which is a really popular video class workshop platform. And there's tons of teachers and it's targeted to the under 18. And we found an introduction to entrepreneurship for 10 to 12 year olds. Oh, so cool. I 
bought a kit, like I bought a spot for her and put her on. And uh, one thing we didn't realize is it came with a subscription to a really interesting program online called Kabloom. Fascinating. Love it. I'm like, I want to use this with some of my clients, but what's it called? Kid Bloom? Kate Bloom. It's K E B L O O M. Okay. It's for kids, but it basically walks them through the step of creating a business plan. Oh, wow. It's so awesome. So she's 10 years old and she's like, Mom, when can I launch my business? And I go, um, um, <laughs> like, you're 10. You really can't, like, you can't launch a business. I'm like, I had to stop and think. And I'm like, why can't she launch a business at 10? Why? I'm like, how about you wait till, you know, take the time to figure out what you're doing first. Then we'll talk about launching it. She's like, oh, okay. So by the time I'm 12, mm. if you think it'll take you two years, you go for it. I'm like, I'm fully expecting that she'll be ready by the end of the year. I mean, she's just that kind of kid, but yeah, you never yeah. know. You never know. <laughs> um, this is the same child that started violin lessons in April of last year. And within the first four months, my violin teacher, her violin teacher came to me and goes, yeah, she's learned more in the last four months than I teach the average student in a year. <laughs> well, <laughs> I go, okay. So that's sure. an interesting thing. And that's something that I observed. It's also something I've heard from other homeschool guests of mine is when a kid is interested in something, really interested in something, they're going to dive in and maybe they can't sustain that deep, deep interest, or maybe they're the kind of kid who learns enough up to a point, feels satisfied with it, and then is looking for something else like, and no judgment, that's fine. But a lot of times they learn stuff so much faster that you have to ask yourself, like, why did I get a whole book on this? I mean, we could have just done, you know, you got it, you got there, you mastered it. We're done. And I still have two months left. So what do you want to be looking at now? Right. Flexibility is both a huge, huge bonus to homeschooling, but also probably is the key to homeschooling success. I mean, not trying to box learning into the framework of four walls and a teacher and a desk. I mean, learning can be so much bigger than that. So much wider than that. In the spirit of talking about learning and ease of learning, like I was doing at the beginning of the show, I'd like to talk a little bit about what happens when you start to master things. Our mind, our brains are still a muscle, which doesn't adequately describe them, but it also is meaningful. Your brain is a part of your body. In fact, rather poetically, The brain is the only part of the body that tells stories about itself. Sometimes those stories aren't very accurate. But here's the thing about the learning process. And once you know it, it's going to make a lot of other things work better. In fact, what it's really going to do is give you hope in your darkest hour. And that is that the period just before mastery is often the time where you're terrible at something. You're worse at it than you were before you started, or at least you perceive that you are. You were getting so much better. I talked about this a little bit in terms of behavior, that sometimes a behavior of a kid is changing, and it's very hard to pull ourselves out of the trigger of what it was like when it wasn't changing. And you feel like, are you kidding? We're back here. 
that's done on an internal level as well. You can see it really, really clearly in toddlers, really tiny kids who are learning how to walk or talk, depending on which one they did first. A kid that is physically learning to walk may lose words. They may have a hard time remembering vocabulary that they had totally down two weeks ago, but their body has moved on to doing this other thing and they've just lost, they're about to master walking. They are right on the cusp. They are right on the edge of mastery, at which point they'll get their language back. They may do something where they have been really, really working on just some aspect of something and get terrible at it. I was learning how to cartwheel a few years ago when I was 40. That's when I learned how to cartwheel. It's funny. I I was friends with gymnasts as a child. I wished I was one. And my friends took gymnastics and I learned how to do things like a front walkover and a handstand. I could walk on my hands but a cartwheel undid me. There was something about the way that I spun around and I would flump on my butt and sit on the ground and laugh. But really inside, I was terribly disappointed at myself. And I started taking circus classes in my mid thirties. And when I was 40, I took an acrobatic class and I thought it's finally time. I will finally learn how to cartwheel. And I worked at it and I worked at it and I worked at it and I started to improve and I started to improve. I started to get more confidence. And then there came a day where I couldn't make it work. I couldn't make the things work that had been working up till now. I couldn't get it at all. I couldn't get my hands in the right position. I couldn't get my arms in the right position. My elbows would buckle. And I was so disappointed and I was so mad at myself and I was really incomprehending of myself. How could I have had this better last week? And it's so, I can't get any of it together. I felt like I was just just made of all hacked together bits that I couldn't get to work together. But I had familiarity with this concept. And I started to wonder to myself, is this a learning dip? There's a great book on this by a guy named Seth Godin. He's a marketer by trade, except that what he does is he writes really engaging books about how a lot of this management and business and other things work. And one of them is called the dip. And it's really about learning because in fact, business and management are all forms of learning. And he goes in depth about the way in which this happens in our brains. We're building new connections. We're building new neurons. We're building new ways of, in my case, moving, but thinking. And in order to do that, we may come to a time, we frequently come to a time where what we've done so far suddenly seems like nothing. Now, I didn't have much support from my parents or my family. And now that I'm an adult, it's clear to me that I'm somewhere along the ADHD spectrum. And I certainly got no assistance with that. And What ends up happening in that circumstance and many similar circumstances is that there were things I dearly wanted to do, (laughs) cartwheels among them, where I just gave up when it got hard. It got too hard. It got too hard and I got so discouraged and I had no reason to believe that I could ever see over this hump. And in fact, most of my surroundings had the message of, I guess that's just not you. We all have to know our own limitations. 
you know, a lot of a lot of child directed and young adult directed messages that were both persevere and get better, but only at some things, only at things that are really important to school and really important to my parents. Things that were really important to me, well, I guess you're not cut out for it. I guess you're not very good at it. You know what? It's not like you're going to ever be a gymnast. As if professionalism was the only direction for mastering anything. And that is a very limited and very heartbreaking and sad way to approach life. And it's one of the reasons why, as young people, we sort of dread becoming adults, because if that's how it's going to be, if everything is going to turn beige and lifeless and sad, and well, you better not and just give up, then really the whole expanse of life from then on looks very, very dreary. And unfortunately, that's that that's the result of all those internalized messages of not being good enough. And so for many, many years, I just got to the really hard part. I tried to persevere through and I would drop it because I just didn't see a way in which I was going to be able to succeed at this. But I love this book. And since reading this book, it has become clear to me, first of all, that for children too young to internalize these messages, they behave this way and they learn. And it's a nothing for families, for, for individuals who are lucky enough to have families that do not overlay them with this kind of despair. They don't have this kind of problem and it's learnable or rather it's relearnable for the rest of us. And that is that when it feels awful, you may be in a learning dip. How long is it going to last? Unclear. Is it going to end? Yes. Is it going to end with mastery? Yes, if you keep going and forgive yourself, are kind to yourself. In fact, in many ways, talk about the brain telling stories to itself. The brain telling a story to itself that it ought to give up and that it's not good enough and that maybe you're just not the kind of person to do this sort of thing. That is the brain telling a despondent story of loss of lack, of whatever the opposite of potential is. And it releases various chemicals in us, in our brains that aren't particularly healthy. The story it could be telling is, I bet I'm in a learning dip. Because I was really feeling like I had momentum on this thing. I was really feeling like I, I was getting it. And then now I just feel like I just don't see that happening. But that's weird because I was improving and now I'm stalled. I wonder if it's a learning dip. And just changing your belief about that can make you have the strength to keep going and to persevere. It can give you a second, third, fourth, fifth charge. It's a place where you go, oh, hey, I should be nice to myself. Because I don't even know if I'm in a learning dip. I won't know that I was in a learning dip unless I keep going. So time to quiet the negative voices in my head, comfort the negative voices in my head, because as adults at any rate, often those are the sort of inner wails of our, of our inner child that we carry with us saying, please let me do this. Please let me get good at this. Please give me the time to do this. Please don't. Don't come down on me 
harshly the way that you want to, the way that you're programmed to. So this is a perfect time to say to yourself, this is a learning dip. If I'm falling, doing these cartwheels that I was starting to get last week, then maybe it's time to say, what? okay, I bet I'm in a learning dip because I've gone backwards. And there's no reason I should have gone backwards. I was progressing. Okay, so knowing it's a learning dip, number one, stop hating on myself. It's everybody goes through learning dips. It's okay. We just never acknowledge it. Okay, so I'm okay. I'm just in a learning dip. That doesn't mean I won't be able to cartwheel. But maybe, maybe hacking away at it will help. Maybe persevering today will help. But maybe knowing I'm in a learning dip, maybe I'll give myself two weeks of something else. Like I'm not, I'm going to persevere. I'm not going to give up on this. But maybe I'll work for two weeks on some things that I really feel good about mastering and do some strength training because my left arm always buckles. So I will, I will do some weightlifting that really concentrate on muscles on that side. And I will do this other activity that I feel really good about myself doing. There is no reason not to treat yourself kindly like that. You will be rewarded because you will master this thing. Because the next time you'll go back refreshed, the next time you'll go back with an attitude of this is doable for me. I'm going to make this mine in one way or another. It allows you the grace to continue. And it's one of those kinds of things that once you kind of get the trick of it, you can extend that grace to others. One of the kind of weird and lovely upshots is that you stop getting so upset at other people's behavior. So there may be people who you are faced with whose behavior frustrates you in some way. Maybe you're training someone and they just don't get it and you walk away thinking, idiot. Well, their likelihood of learning from you is diminished if you hold them in contempt, which we talked about at the top of the hour. But if instead you look at them and you say, well, you're getting the hang of it and now for some reason you've stopped. Um, I think I'll charitably assume that you're in a learning dip and I'll talk to you about maybe giving this thing a break, maybe doing a couple things that will improve your ability to do this thing, maybe backing up a little bit to where you're successful and starting from there, maybe asking you some ways that you might feel more comfortable or ways that I can support you in whatever it is that I'm training you to do. And the best coaches and the best trainers do exactly this. And by doing exactly this, my coaches and my trainers successfully supported me in nailing a cartwheel. I actually haven't done it for a couple of years because I haven't had the space to do it safely, but I know now that I can do a perfectly lovely cartwheel. I can rock those across a large room, preferably with a mat, without falling on my butt and being sad and being catapulted back to my seven-year-old self. In fact, this is the kind of training that supported me in being able to be on a flying trapeze, despite a heart-stopping fear of heights that I had for many, many years. And I have actually diminished it 
by doing things like challenging myself through flying trapeze. I started doing that in my 40s. And it was liberating to do something that was just joyful, that I was truly, I was going to say truly terrible at, but in fact, I was a rank novice at. I'd never done anything like it. I was overweight. I was middle-aged. I'd had three kids and I was terrified of heights. And by doing it and challenging myself and going back to the flying trapeze rig another time and another time and another time, I was able to get myself to a place where I was pretty happy at what I had done. And I am no longer terrified of heights. That was a little bit of it that I didn't expect to have happen. And yet it did. And I am not a superwoman and I am not a super athlete. And I am not in the best shape of my life. And I am not many, many things that just stating that would make a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't because don't argue for your own limitations. Don't argue for kids' limitations. Argue for your potential because you've got it. Have a wonderful week. Stay well. Stay warm. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.